Hello and welcome to Albion Obsessed. You join us for a very special episode where we welcome on Johnny Cantor, the voice of Brighton and Hove Albion. Johnny, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on the show today. Thank you for giving up your time. How are you, my friend? I'm very well indeed, actually. Already missing the football, of course, but um, the, the, yeah, the fixtures are out next week, so we've got something to get excited about. Most definitely. I can't wait to see those fixtures, who we get first. Johnny, just um, before we move on, um, is there any fixture that you don't want first, that you just think to yourself, oh, the first fixture of the season? Oh, no. Uh, from a purely practical point of view, I actually quite like getting some of the longer trips over and done with. Uh, it, actually, in August is not too bad. OK, people are on holiday and stuff. But uh, in terms of the practicality, just getting a few under your belt is quite nice. So I, I wouldn't be offended if I have to go to Newcastle on the opening day of the season. Um, but there's a few in there that I'm quite glad that I'm not going to have to do because they got relegated. So um, but no, I don't really mind. I think it's going to be an away game because um, it's Pride weekend in in Brighton and Hove, so um, I can assume we'll be on our travels. But um, now I've said that, we're bound to get Newcastle away, aren't we? The big damn, bur- big damn burn derby. We also welcome back Joe. Joe, mate, how are you doing? Hello, mate. Yeah, um, it's been a while since I've been on. Um, been moving in the meantime, so settled here in Littlehampton now. So, yeah, it's good. Uh, actually, funny story. The other day we were walking through like the, the back end of Littlehampton, uh, quite a nice area um, to the shop. And I saw Antef Songi um, on, on my way there. So that was quite nice. I was like, hold on a minute. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I'm good, mate. Was he starstruck? Was he like, that's Joe from Albion Obsessed? He was, yeah, he was. <laughs> you should have collared him and tried to get him on the, uh, the podcast, mate. Always next time. Um, and we also welcome back Curtis Friend. Curtis Friend, how are you, my friend? I am excellent. Thank you, Thomas. Yes. Glad to be back as well. Fantastic. Yes. Yeah, so as Johnny's alluded to, there's no football at the moment, which is a, a bit disappointing for us football fans. However, we have got a very exciting episode. As I say, we welcome on Johnny Cantor, JC, the voice of Brighton and Hove Albion. JC, you'll have to forgive me as I just fanboy a little bit. Um, I've been listening to you on my radio for a long time. Um, and there's something quite magical, I feel, about radio that you just don't get with uh, television. Um, so a bit of background about me, Johnny, is I'm I'm Sussex born and bred, but I now live in the West Midlands, so um, can't always get down to home games. So I rely very much on you and Warren uh, to uh, bring me all the, uh, the the match analysis and, you know, the commentary. Um, so it's a, a genuine pleasure to have you on the show today, mate. Um we always like to start these uh, these uh, guest interviews with some pretty generic questions, but I think it helps build the the picture of the the, the guest we've got on. And and the first question I want to ask you, mate, is um, what was your first game um, going to watch Brighton in the flesh? Um, well, my first game covering them was Bristol Rovers away um, in two thousand and nine. Um, it was it was a midweek game. I remember it uh, being. It wasn't great weather. I seem to remember that. Um, and I was that was my first game as a reporter for Brighton and Hove Albion. Um, I do remember Gary Hart setting up, I think, Calvin Andrew for a, for a winner, I think. It might have been 2-0, 2-1. And in fact, that was the start of the great escape. Um, I don't know how many points they were adrift at that point when I arrived. Obviously, I take total credit for everything that happened at the end of that season and them staying up on the final day. Um, but that was my first. And, and and actually, I think what I do remember is being very close to the fans um, 
And actually, there was a great atmosphere. If you, if you think, you know, you're rooted to the bottom of the table, you might expect it to be pretty dour. But actually, the Albion fans were fantastic that night. And that was a sign for things to come. So, um, yeah, thankfully for me, ever since that first game, it's been pretty much an upward trajectory. Amazing. Yeah. And um, you you see the players in a different light to what us fans do. Um, so you can take this question any angle you like. Um, but who's your favourite player, either interviewing or watching just anything um, you like, really, however you want to take the question? I'm glad you didn't ask me for my worst interview. Um, that would be revealing something, I guess. But uh, no, I think... Um... Probably the most exciting player when I when I got really excited when I thought, hang on, this is something special was Vicente. Um, he technically was something that I don't think anyone had seen at Brighton and Hove Album. They'd had great players. I don't think there's any two ways about that. But I think this was just like a star. Okay, yes, he was coming towards the end of his career, and it was a it was a shame he kept picking up those injuries. But technical ability, just that excitement. I mean, literally, I know fans get off their seats, but literally, I was like that when I first saw him play for the Albion, and and that was really really exciting as a commentator, particularly. Um, I've always had sort of a soft spot for Liam Bridcup. Um, not because something that obviously we'll talk about maybe a little bit later, but but actually he was a key component in that side. He linked everything together. He did the sort of the slightly mundane stuff that no one got the credit for. And, and he just went about his business. You could see his class, Chelsea upbringing, fantastic, you know. And, and for me, he was like a little cog in the wheel, really. And probably the most underrated player, um, personally, I think was Gordon Greer. I think he was an incredible captain. I think he was an incredible leader. And one person, obviously, who I interviewed on, on countless occasions, but actually he was like, it was a really sort of solid person as well. And I think he didn't really get the credit for what he achieved sort of probably on the pitch and probably in the dressing room as well. So, so there's three for slightly different reasons, I suppose, in terms of some of my favourite players. Yeah, just touching upon Gordon Greer there, it's actually really pleasing to see him back uh, at the Albion in the loaned manager position, I believe. Um, mm. But yeah, he was, as you say, JC, a fantastic captain at Brighton. Um, and yeah, I think during those early Amex years, you know, absolutely fantastic. Definitely what we needed at the club as our captain. He's Sorry, a pretty go. good summariser as well, actually. Um, he's done a couple of games. I don't know whether you would have uh, been listening for those ones, but he's done a couple of games uh, for us and he's very insightful. Um, obviously he's an international um, and he just gets it really. So basically um, throughout the time that you've been watching uh, Brighton, what would you say has been your favourite shirt that we've donned? Well, I, I mean, I did have a think about this one because there's so many, isn't there? Um, I've actually gone slightly against the grain for this one. Um, I always said I would never want to watch a club that played in green. Um partly because it's a nightmare for a commentator, but I just don't, it just doesn't seem right somehow for football because it's got a green background. But I loved the green and black away strip, um, synonymous with the likes of Gary Dicker, Andrew Crofts, Will Buckley, Craig McHale-Smith. Um, it was just at a time when, I mean, I know now it's quite, it's big business, isn't it? Uh, football shirts and you've got loads there, which look really, really cool. Um, and I do love some of the older ones, of course, you know, the skint one as well. But but actually, 
I did love that. And it was sort of the start of when everyone was going slightly neon, weren't they? Um, and I thought, mm, I really like this. I, I have to admit, I really like this shirt. So, and, and obviously good memories from on the pitch. There was, um, and, uh, you know, I, th I think they performed really well in it. So that's a real favourite of mine. Yeah, I absolutely love that shirt, the green and black stripes. Um, and also what a shirt to start our career at the Amex and as well for our away. Shirt. Yeah, absolutely. I was very lucky. Um, I don't have much memorabilia, if truth be told, because I, I quite often actually give it to a people probably more deserving than me. But I do have one thing that I have kept, and that's a fully signed League One promotion shirt, um, the home kit. Um, so that is a favourite of, of, of mine as well, because that season was very special for me as a, as a, as a commentator. Yeah, I really love that shirt, but I bought I got it when I was like fourteen, um, and I got it in a size boys large. Definitely doesn't fit me now. It's safe to say. <laughs> um, I'd, I'd love a, a a bigger one. <laughs> it's funny when you say about like uh, shirts being synonymous because that um, twenty eleven promotion one just reminds me of Glenn Murray with the whole uh, hand to the head uh, celebration. Absolutely, Tom. Yeah, absolutely I agree. love it. Um, Big fan of Glenn Murray. Always have been, always will be. Um, so, Johnny, let's um, let's talk about your punditry then. Um, I suppose for maybe the casual listener or the listener who's not really sure about how people get into it, how do you get into, like, sports punditry? Is there, like, a course you take at a college or a university? Or, you know, how, how did that um, how, how did that happen for you? Um, well, people often ask me when, you know, what was my first ever game uh, in terms of, of covering games? And I say England against Poland in 1974. Now, you're probably a little bit young to maybe even be alive at that moment in time. I was alive. But the reason I say that game, because it wasn't heard by anybody, because it was literally on my carpet floor in my lounge playing Sabutio with my brother. Um, that is how I kind of started. I just naturally started talking. Um, and that's where it came. I was, I think, six turning seven. Um, and that's how it started for me. I used to listen on a little chrysalis radio in my bed underneath the pillow, European nights when I shouldn't have been, all those sorts of things. And that's how, and that's why I love radio. Um, that's how it all started for me. When I, when I left school, um, again, I am quite old. So um, there weren't such thing as media degrees and things like that then. And I didn't really know anyone. And I'd sort of given up on my, uh, my, I suppose, my dream, really, of becoming a, a commentator. And then I decided to pack it all in, save up some money uh, and go back to university, um, you know, uh, a, f a fair few years on. And I retrained and um, I'm actually a news trained journalist. So I've got a master's in multimedia journalism. Um, I've covered and continue to cover news. I even cover elections. Um, uh, it's not just football commentary that I do for the BBC. Um, so that was sort of my background. And I always say, cause I'm often lecturing to students and potential sort of reporters, commentators, you know, if you can do, you know, all the other bits as well, it really holds you in good stead, even if you really want to do sport, because, you know, sport is about business. It's about finance. It's about legal issues, all those things as well. So I think you have to be quite multifaceted really. And then I just got the opportunity and I did work experience and, um, I actually started off in television um but um but my love of radio i think you know always sort of centered me to to doing radio commentary and and i do love it i you know 
I think it's very they're two very different disciplines um you know and, and they're just they're just different there's not, not I don't think there's one particularly better than the other I just love the way that you can express yourself in radio um and even if you think about television commentary sometimes on say even match of the day you're actually doing it on your own um you're not actually doing it with a summarizer and that that relationship with your summarizer I've been very lucky with all my Albion summarizers has been excellent um that that it's that relationship as well that you can bounce off each other and hopefully that, that that resounds to the listener as well it most certainly does i mean as i say long-time listener and i think you and warren have got a fantastic partnership there you can always um you have your little bit of banter um which is great but it's so it's so great to hear warren's you know he's he's so such a knowledgeable person um and the both of you as i say you just come across so well on the radio um, so it's quite interesting you say about like the television. I think I agree. I, I don't think that it has the re- sort of romanticism, I suppose, of of radio. For, well, certainly for me anyway, I'm quite get quite romantic about the radio um, instead of television. But um, like when when you when you say you've done television before, I've done like televisual uh, television television uh, like punditry on like um, I just like on like Sky Sports or anything like that. No, I, I haven't worked. I've previously worked for ITV and Channel 5, um, but I haven't worked for uh, Sky. And now I am a full staff member at the BBC. So that kind of slightly obviously restricts my role uh, within that. Um, I'm not too worried about it. I think obviously, this, as you said, there's a certain romance um, and obviously your exposure is maybe a little bit larger. But but even I think people like, you know, in terms of the BBC, John Murray, Ian Dennis, even now continue the long line of wonderful radio commentators on the network um i think there are advantages and disadvantages of covering like a club regularly um i'm often the first port of call when someone wants to know what's going on at brighton um how they set up how they play this player that player you know who's coming in who's going out obviously um which is great because i see every game because I, I commentate on every game saying that you know some people enjoy the you know the variety of maybe you know one minute it's like Orient, next minute it's norwich city you know, whoever it may be. But um, at the moment, it kind of works for me. I enjoy it. And and hopefully the listeners do too. So um, and I think you can, you can always fall back, can't you? If there's a if there's a, an anecdote from, you know, 15 years ago that I can recall, obviously, that can hopefully enrich the commentary as well. Yeah. And has it always been? Um, have you always sort of followed Brighton Hove Albion? So is it like a, a dream to... I actually started in non-league football. Um, oh, really? Uh, yeah, I started non-league football. I The first game I did was Basingstoke Town against Tiverton Town in the FA Cup uh, doing updates. That was my... I've probably never been more nervous, to be honest, because that, you know, you, you eventually get the chance. I mean, they say you can either do it or you can't, and you don't know until you try. And that's pretty true. Um... And I ended up doing a fair bit of National League and National League South. Um, and I used to travel up to sort of two, two, three hours just to do um, non-league commentaries at places like Tamworth um, was uh, my first full commentary um, at the Lamb. Uh, in amongst the Tamworth fans, I had my kit between my legs. Um, my kit wouldn't work to begin with. Um, and you go through all these things, you drive home, you're thinking, is this what it's all about? Um but I persisted and, um, you know, gradually I've managed to, you know, I suppose get enough experience that people took me seriously and um, and went went from that point with the support and help of others, of course, as well. And, um, you know, I'm delighted uh, that now I've got the chance to, um, you know, be commentating on a Premier League club as well. 
So um, I'm going to ask, I mean, through, throughout the years, what's been your favourite moment uh, covering Brighton and Hove Albion? My favourite moment, I mean, I know it's an obvious one, but the promotions are special. Um, and, and I think not necessarily if you're talking about, you take moment, because that's not just about the football, because they probably weren't always the best games. Um, I think the win against Dagenham and Redbridge was, you know, even when I interviewed the players afterwards, they said, you know, Gus will be moaning about that one because it was so open, too open. He didn't like it, you know, but they got there in the end, but he was still moaning. Um, but I think the atmosphere around it, everything that's happening around the club, I think on nights like that or, you know, the, the Wigan one where, you know, you know it's going to happen, but then we had to wait, didn't we, for the other result to come through and all the drama of, of going with that. So I think those are special, special moments. And for me, because, you know, I don't always see the fans. I do see some. They come up to me and chat, and that's really, really lovely. You know, I do get some lovely emails. You know, we converse on social media sometimes. But actually, that's what it's all about. You know, it's the most important relationship, even as Graham Potter said, it is. And, uh, you know, I do love the fans dearly. And and for me, when I think back, you know, and my family connections to the days of, you know, leaving the Goldstone ground, um, you know, the heartache over that, you know, being in the wilderness for so long, um, I guess meant it was, I mean, as, as a journalist, I mean, I'm a sort of reporter, commentator, as a journalist, it's all about the story. And Brighton and Hove Albion has always had a story. And that's that moving from Widdy and that promotion moving to the Amex, perfect timing, as Gus said, you know, then the move from the championship to the Premier League for the first time in their history. You know, it's a wonderful story. And that's hopefully what I like doing is telling stories. And those moments are just so key. Yeah, definitely. And you mentioned um, just while she was speaking there that that Wigan game um, and the celebrations after. You were right in amongst those uh, the players all around you. What are your like standout memories from like seeing the fans pour onto the pitch? It just must have been such a spectacle. It was a real spectacle. I was a little bit worried because of my kit because um, I was being invaded at the same time, just like the pitch was. Um, I've not really had a, a, a mass patch, uh, pitch invasion, um, really. There was a little bit one at Walsall, I think, when they won the League One title, and there was a little bit one at Withy. It wasn't quite the same because it was so open and everything. But what struck me about that moment at Wigan was when I looked down on the pitch, the different generations of fans, you know, there was one, like, granddaughter who was with her, looked like a grandfather, and he had a little stick with him, and I just thought that was one of the most beautiful moments that you could have them sharing that together. Meanwhile, you know, I've got, you know, Baram Kyle's studs in my shoulder as he basically thought he was putting his foot on the table, but was actually basically cutting into my uh, shoulder. My kit started sliding off the table as Sam Baldock came from that side and Warren was trying to bat him back. And we were trying to hold on to the kit because if we let go of the kit, it's gone and the broadcast is gone. So part of it was self-preservation. Um, but you're right. And to be, I'm very, you know, pleased that, you know, obviously it's been captured in photos and newspapers and stuff to be at the heart of it because we are at the heart of the story we are the ones that went to Grimsby and Scunthorpe and places like that but to still be there on the day that they head into the Premier League was 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 really special and that was a really good special group of players who you know were there and actually having the chairman there letting him sort of you know let himself go was absolutely brilliant as well uh, Paul Barber um, you know, everybody with their shirts off, you know, it was just, yeah, fabulous, fabulous memories. Yeah, yeah. It's, um, it's, it's funny, isn't it? How you, you know, you talk about it and instantly these images just flash up in your, your mind of it. Um, it was a magical day. 
um, probably one of the, the one of the greatest moments in this club's proud history. Um, so, Johnny, just to flip it on its head, then, and we talk about the really good stuff. Has there ever been a match where you've commentated and because of the weather, because of what you've seen on the pitch, you're just thinking, I just want this match to end? Um, there's been a few of those, to be honest. Um, Weather-wise, you know, if it gets if it if it gets really cold, if it goes, you know, sub minus five or whatever, it's it's tough um, because as a commentator, you don't move very much and trying to keep warm. I know it sounds a ridiculous thing to say. You know, you start to affect how you're thinking and how you're moving and, and what you're trying to concentrate because it is quite taxing. Um, I don't know if you've ever tried to talk nonstop for an hour and a half without interruption. Um, it is quite demanding at times, and it, particularly if it's a really bad game. So the weather can play a key factor, um, and and the circumstances and the the commentary boxes you've been in. I've been seeing some shockers in, in there before. Um, I remember the old Chesterfield ground, and I literally couldn't get myself out of it. Um, even Everton nowadays is pretty poor. But um, you've got the block view, whether it's Crystal Palace or Luton, you can't see either goal. Um, they're always very challenging. But sometimes it's about what's happening on the pitch. And I remember an away game at MK Dons when there was nothing on it, mid-table. I seem to remember Jake Forstakowski making his debut in that game. Um, it was nil-nil, and that was just about the only interesting thing that happened from start to finish. There was virtually no one in the ground. It didn't have anything riding on it. No one wanted to be there, and those are the ones that are a real, real struggle. Um, and again, it comes back to the story. There is no story, and that's the problem. I remember, um, I mean, people often say, what was the most challenging interview you ever did? And I have to say, um, one of them is probably the 7-1 defeat to Huddersfield under Russell Slade, um, um, having your goalkeeper sent off um, and then your goalkeeper letting one in from the penalty spot straight after, losing by that amount. That was really, really, really tricky. But in a way, there was still a story to it. Um, it had a significance. And sometimes if games don't have a significance, that can be really hard going. Um, if you've got seven, eight goals flying in, top left, you know, all, all around the pitch and there's stuff happening and there's sendings off, it's not a problem. But some of those nil-nil draws are the ones where you have to draw on every single bit of experience. I seem to remember we ended up talking that MK Dons game. We ended up talking about footballers' hairstyles and what were the most ridiculous ones you've ever had, what you've ever seen. Um, and, you know, it was fun. We just tried to make it a fun listen because bottom line is nothing was happening on the pitch. Yeah, that must be really, really tough. I've never thought about it from that perspective before, but now you, as soon as you said it, yeah, that makes total sense. Um, so talking about grounds, you mentioned a few grounds there. Um, are there any grounds that you just love going to? You think, oh, we get to go to the Etihad or we get to go to Old Trafford. Are there any grounds that get you really excited? Um, in terms of as a commentator? Yeah. Um, I mean, the new Tottenham Hotspur Stadium is unbelievable. Um I, I, I ha it has that sort of feeling of just epic. It is an epic stadium. Um, I think it's got quite a continental feel. Um, you know, I've been lucky enough to do UEFA Cup games um, and been abroad. And I think, you know, foreign clubs do tend to have a slightly different atmosphere. Um, and, and that can be quite nice. And it gives me a feel of that continental style uh, game. Um, which is something a little bit special. And hopefully we'll have those at the Amex soon. Um, but so so that is really, really uh, a special stadium um, from that point of view. I, I, I quite like some of the old... I mean, 
dare I say it, Crystal Palace, you know, because of what's riding on it. You know, it's a it's old school. It's noisy. It's ramshackle. Um, it's horrible. But it creates a great atmosphere, you know, and that's what it's about. You know, as a commentator, I can feed off that. And if you get a moment like Neil Mope lobbing the keeper in the final minute, you know, that's what it's all about, isn't it? You know, Um but some of them have been fantastic. I mean, I've been lucky enough to go to places like uh, Inter Milan and places like that. That's I think there is something special about being abroad. Um, but some of those old school ones are, are, are tremendous. Funnily enough, I think some of the bigger clubs don't necessarily have the better stadiums. Um, I mean, Everton has a fantastic atmosphere. But again, the facilities are, you know, severely lacking. Um, a bit like Manchester United as well. But um, yeah, I've really enjoyed going to uh, Tottenham Hotspur's new stadium, and and actually White Hart Lane was great as well. I seem to remember a League Cup game. Um, we used to be right behind the dugout. I think Christian Walton made his debut uh, in that game, and um, that 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 was that was a really good atmosphere uh, as well. You can absolutely skip this question if you want to. Um, you might not be able to answer it. But um, who has been the most challenging manager? And you talk about it's it's about the story. It's a, then it's about communication as well from those inside the club. Who's been the most challenging manager to to get that story or to to get something from? Well, I'm certainly not going to say Graham Potter, am I? Um, <laughs> uh, no, he's he's great to deal with. Um, generally, they are pretty good to deal with, um, and you build a relation. Coming back to what I was saying earlier about obviously covering the club week in week out can be beneficial because you can build up a relationship, but it can be slightly detrimental because obviously you've got to go back two days later and start asking them questions again. Whereas some reporters know I can ask him what the hell I like, because I'm not coming back for another six months. Um, and he probably won't even remember me by then. So um, that poses its problems. I think for different reasons. Um, I mean, Russell Slade was very uh, honest. I found him absolutely fine. Um, Gus was quite tricky and spiky at times, particularly when they'd lost. Um, he had an obsession about stats uh, from the BBC, which weren't actually provided by us, but that used to be a bone of contention. But, you know, he was called the radio for a reason. You know, I just asked one question and boom. You could say my job was quite easy because he always had something to say. Um, probably more challenging is when you get someone like Oscar Garcia, whose English isn't very good, and he was wanting to say stuff, but maybe found it a little bit more challenging. Um, and those are probably the more difficult ones. But you're always trying to elicit different things from managers and different topics. Um, you know, Chris was, uh, Chris Hutton was very sort of straight down the line, honest, um, but he's quite guarded as well. So it's trying to just eke out a few things. Uh, from him as well but um, they're all different that's the beauty of it and I, I, th I think probably every manager admits or knows that they won't be in the in, in the job for a whole lifetime so um, you, you know I always say to some up-and-coming commentators and reporters careful what you wish for because um, you never know quite know what's coming around the corner so um, but generally I've been very very lucky. Decent, decent. Um, I suppose similar sort of question, but now, but from a player perspective, because I mean, I'm sure there must be some players that you absolutely love to chat to. Um, are there any particular Brighton players in the squad now that you just you'd love to chew their ear off? Um, I mean, access to players has changed slightly. So um, and because of the demands of being in the Premier League and a global club now. Um, so you do get less time. Um, but obviously, I do enjoy those that I have a really good relationship. I mean, Lewis Dunk is somebody I've covered since his debut um, right throughout his career. You know, he's heading up to 400 appearances. So, you know, 
he doesn't do too much media, but I think I've seen him change and develop and become more confident, more mature. And that's something that, you know, I enjoy um, on the same level. I, I do like chatting to Solly because he's a local boy and he's, you know, he knows where I'm coming from. I know where he's coming from. And that's quite nice as well. Um, but it's nice to speak to sort of, you know, stellar stars as well, isn't it? You know, you look at what Albion have got at the moment. I mean, it is quite incredible, really. I mean, Enoch and Wepu, you could not dislike the bloke. Honestly, he is. Just, I would love to just, I know he's not going to go on a night out with us all, is he? But you could imagine he would just be fun. You know, he's just a, a fun guy. He's got a smile on his face. He's absolutely adorable. Honestly, you know, he's just infectious. You know, I, I just walk away just, you know, I'm buzzing, you know, having spoken to him. He's a great guy. But speaking to people like, you know, Leandra Trossard, you know, very intelligent, um, sees the game well, um, you know, as well. So now there's some great there's some great guys in there. Um, you know, I'm, I, I mean, even I mean, Adam Webster's an absolute trooper for me. Um, and obviously, I think you know the difficult time is when players don't want to do the interviews. You know, and the ones who will stump up, that will come out, that will face the music um, and give an honest appraisal. And I always respect them for that. They don't have to do it. Um, some of them don't want to. I totally understand that. I probably wouldn't want to either. Um, we've all been in a bit of a mood on a Friday night after our five-a-side teams lost and we were you missed that open goal to win it. You know, you, you would you want to have someone stick a microphone in your face? No, probably not. But um, but no, there's some there's some real characters, and I think actually characters are really important in a squad, you know. Um it's about a combination of players. You can't have players that are all the same, you can't have loads of quiet ones, you can't have loads of jokers, you can't have, you know, you need kind of everyone being a leader. It doesn't work like that always. So, um, but no, they've got some wonderful people. The, the new additions are fabulous, aren't they? I mean, Mark Kukurea, I don't know if you saw the award ceremony. You know, they say he's an absolute, like, scream in the in the change room. And I can believe it because he's got a real wicked sense of humour. Johnny, I meant to ask, actually, how do you go about approaching an interview when it's quite clear that they, they don't want to actually communicate or talk? How do you How do you deal with that? Um, what the actual interview or or trying to approach them to do the interview? The actual interview. The actual interview. Um, I think it's all about context sometimes and perspective. Um, you have to be aware that they're probably in the heat of the moment and in the, you know emotions are running high. Um, they put a lot of physical effort and mental effort into what they've just done. Um, and being fair, I think, you know, if you generally are fair, then... You, you're okay. I mean, I, I talk about that Russell Slade interview. He was very honest, actually, and he apologised to the fans. And I gave him that opportunity. Um, and that's, I think, the job of the reporter. I think if you're unfair, you know, then you're, I, I think that's unreasonable, really. But as long as you're reasonable, however, sometimes I have had to turn around and whether it's a manager and just say, is it time for you to leave the football club? Have you done everything you can do? That's my job. I'm employed by the BBC. To I'm a public service broadcaster. I'm employed by you, the public, because you pay your licence fee. Um, and that's the job that I do. So, um, But with reason and with fairness and with respect. And I think if you add those three things into whatever you ask, you should be on the right lines. Definitely. Um, just thinking of that, that idea of like pushing those hard questions, I suppose... Maybe not now because we've just seen the season end, but I suppose in a few months when the season does start again, I suppose 
people will be looking to you to be asking questions about transfers and all sorts. Mm. And obviously the, the club play their cards very close to the chest, and I think rightfully so. Um, do you, as a, as a commentator, as a pundit that, had, that works quite closely with the club, um, do you ever, and I'm not asking you to give us any information whatsoever, but do, are you ever sort of like privy to any information before it becomes public? Or is that, you know, uh, you do you find out at the same time as the rest of us? I think, you know, as a journalist, you're all, it's always about contacts. Um, and I still people have people in my, whose number in my phone that I had when I first started out. Um, I try and use an example um, uh, of somebody who maybe, uh, say for instance, John Hollins is a person who, you know, used to be a manager. He was manager at Weymouth, obviously inextricably linked with Chelsea, but he's somebody I could pick up the phone to and just ring and have a chat to, you know, if I was going to Stamford Bridge. You know, those sorts of people, you 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 find out, you know, I'm not going to go into too much detail in Brighton, and it, obviously from that respect, but there are people who you know within football, who you've dealt with in the past, and it's about trust. And, you know, I would never dream of, you know, betraying anybody's trust because they're never going to trust you again. And it's as simple as that. So um, if I'm privy to it, um, there may be times where you might break a story and just go straight for it. Yep, no problem. But at the same time, there may be opportunities where you might think, is this really going to do me any favours? And, you know, if you've had it double sourced, you know, that might be another big factor in whether you would run a story as well. But you obviously have to offer a right to reply to somebody as well. So all those different issues come to bear it sort of comes back to what I was saying earlier about being you know training and you said how do you start I mean if you've gone through all that process you know when you've learned it whether you go and do a degree in it whether you just go straight to an apprenticeship or become a reporter straight out of school whatever you do if you've learned that that'll hold you in good stead because that helps you build up a picture um you might be privy to certain bits of information but I think again things have changed I was probably privy to more information when the club were in a different position than they maybe are now, and that's understandable, makes more sense and actually helps the club as well. And I, you know, I want to be able to help the club if I possibly can, but also do my job too. Yeah, definitely. And as you say, it's about that trust and you don't want to, um, you know, alienate yourself um, at all. So I totally understand that, but thank you very much for, you know, for your insight there. Um, so you've covered Brighton for a number of years now and over that time, you you have brought us some fantastic, what I like to call JC-isms. Um, <laughs> some lines of commentary that stick with fans. And I'm sure you know what I'm going to say. But the infamous commentary line that is still played to this day at the Amex, Bridcut versus Carlisle, it's the stuff of champions, it's the stuff of dreams. Um, how does it feel to know that you've made one of those timeless commentary statements um because like whenever i hear that at the amex it still gives me goosebumps um so like how does it feel to like have that played all the time or is it something you're a bit sick of now no i'm not going to get sick of it i think fun, funny enough it is sometimes quite odd listening back to your own voice uh, i don't know if you guys ever do it but um um extensively but no it feels very special i'm very grateful um to have that opportunity um, I'm glad you actually mentioned the whole quote, uh, the stuff of champions, the stuff of dreams, because quite often um, people cut it a little bit short. Um, it has been copied twice um, by two other people. Um, I suspect I know why. 
um, and for what reason and the timing of it as well. Um, but that doesn't, you know, I, I, I guess uh, it, it's a, it's it flatters me, I suppose, to a certain degree and is is flattering. But no, it, it was a special uh, sort of moment. You talk about special moments. It was a special moment. And um, yeah, I'm delighted that they still use it. I know it gets chopped up a little bit. and um, But for me, that is the full quote. I didn't just say the stuff of Drew. I said that this is the, the stuff of champions. And and the, the second point came on the back of that. So from that point of view, um, I hope that that encapsulated what was... Because the idea, if you think about it, yes, because it's just seven words or whatever it is. Actually, it was the what I was trying to explain was this is the sort of things that people do when they're going to win the title. Is basically what you're saying, and it doesn't happen very often. So that is, if you nut down what that actually means, that is what it means. Um, and I was just lucky enough. And actually, as I spoke it, the first line came to me. I said it. And then the second line came on, you know, I, I, I don't write these things. I don't write anything down. I'm not a scripted commentator. I think that's quite sometimes even insulting to the listener as well. Um, I understand and, and pre-match, I would certainly have a, a specific, you know, way of introducing a game. That's I think that's absolutely fine. But when it comes to commentary, particularly on the radio, you're reaching for words. It doesn't always come. You don't always get it right. Um, that's just a fact. But when you do... It's natural. And that, if you can get it right, I think is the key. But for me, yeah, obviously, you know, for most home games, it's somewhere in there, isn't it? And um, and actually some of the some of the promotion material as well. Um, I've never done it, but I would actually quite like to listen to the 15 minutes afterwards because I probably had verbal diarrhea. But some of the stuff I was saying, I think, does get repeated occasionally um, as well about staring into the abyss and all that sort of stuff. I think I was stirring up a bit of Shakespeare in there or something. I don't know where it came from, but, um, but, but yeah, but no, I'm, yeah, it's really special and, and I'm, I'm glad. And, um, and hopefully there's a couple of people out there that remember it was me. Yeah. Was are there really... any lines, sorry, Tom, just to cut in, are there any lines that, uh, cause obviously that they're all over the, the montages and everything. Are there any lines that you remember that no one's really picked up on that stick out to you that you sort of go off of or, um, I, I don't know, really. I mean, I'm not a real sort of look back and wallow in stuff, really. I don't sort of, you know, dissect everything I've ever done. Um, um, there was one when uh, Brighton played Wickham away, and I thought it was like 4-3 or something like that. I think Glenn Murray scored a hat-trick, and I think uh, a certain Mr Hinshelwood was in caretaker charge. I may have got that wrong. But that game, and I think I said something like i can't even remember it now i'll have to dig it up now won't i but it was something like um he had two red cards uh one one hat trick two red cards eight goals but total drama and that again kind of you know i don't know where it came from it that's probably wrong that's probably it's somewhere like that i'll have to try and find it um but i remember it being a really special game it's one of those games it just flew by so much was going on um and yeah it was just an incredible incredible time but i do remember being very proud of that moment at the time but then i they probably people didn't really pick up on it um the, the brid cut goal slightly went slightly viral the day after and then it went on to television and then it was promoted on tv and then they had fans talking about the commentary and and it kind of went so it slightly got probably more exposure than some of the others over the years 
it's a yeah, it's, a, it's a, an iconic piece of Brian commentary. And another one that always sticks with me. It's not a particularly long one, but it's when uh, Anthony Knockhart scored against Wolves, and you just say he's simply box office. And it's something like that. It's, it's like so simple. Personal favourite of mine, that one. Is it? Oh, that's, I'm, I'm, I'm pleased. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you're just sitting there and you know what he's like. We talk about players like Vicente or whatever. And Nanti Knocker is another one of those players, isn't it? He gets people excited. He can be frustrating. Uh, he can be challenging. Um, but also, he was just an absolute wizard, wasn't he? With that left foot. And, and you're sitting there. He goes through. And I'm sitting there thinking, well, I don't even know what I'm going to say. But if he tucks this away... You know, and I don't know, you just, you know, it's just a phrase that comes and, it, you know, and again, you reach for the words. Sometimes you get them. And on that occasion, I think I did. And he was because that is what he is. And, you know, you know, he, he just he gets bums off seats because he is box office. And um, yes, you've reminded me a good one there. So I'll have to I need to start making a list of these. Probably when I retire, they'll ask me for my top 10 or something. So I, I probably should write these down. Yeah, good, good idea. But I say, I think Anthony Lockhart was probably one of my all-time favourite players for Brighton. Just as you say, so exciting and such a passionate man. Um, and yeah, watching him bomb down the wing and do what he did, the goal against Crystal Palace automatically comes to mind. Um, and when, yeah, something like that. So what a player. Well, what a player. And, and I have to say, he deserves a lot of credit for opening up when he was suffering from depression, because when... I started that interview, I had no idea. And we talk about, you know, interviewing players, the honesty that he showed was incredible. Because um, when he used that word um, himself, I actually sort of suddenly you're thinking, hang on, I need to just bear this in mind here. Here's somebody who maybe, and I think it was good for him because I think it was quite therapeutic, um, but he was honest. He had troubles that he wanted to explain. I think we maybe knew that he wasn't totally happy. Um, and sometimes being happy off the pitch helps you on the pitch as well. But um, yeah, a special, special player. And I was lucky enough to go on the parade, actually. I probably won't go into too much detail, but when we had the parade down on the seafront and um, he'd had a few. So um, he was certainly enjoying himself. But um, yeah, real character and yeah, uh, and uh, a really good guy as well. I think I think we seem to forget that football players are human beings at the end of the day. And I know a lot of a lot of football players in their interviews are like, yes, I scored this goal and it was a really good game, blah, blah, blah. Um, but when you see this human side of these football players, I think it's incredibly necessary. And and it's great that um, they feel like they can open up to individuals such as yourself, you know. Yeah. And I think, you know, Graham Potter has talked a lot about that in the last couple of years. It's been a very challenging time for the, you know, for the whole world, really, not just everyone in this country, um, but also for these guys, too. And I know people might find it a little bit, you know, repetitive or whatever. But he, you know, he does stress the importance of this. You know, imagine what you were doing when you were 17. I'm going to send you away from your family, go to another country where you can't speak the language and try and do a job. Yes, you're paid a fair amount of money, none of which you're going to see and go out there and perform. How difficult is that? You know, it might be that, you know, here's somebody whose marriage might be breaking up or here's somebody whose parents are ill. Here's, you know, people have things going on. These are human beings all the same. Now, we all want to do our job as best as we can, as long as we can, for as many times as we can, you know. But I might have a really bad day because I might not, you know, my job is to be up for you know, two o'clock on a Saturday afternoon, no matter what's happening in my life. 
it's not always difficult sometimes. And I think that's you know really important that we remember these guys are human beings. And the whole debate around being role models, I think, is quite an interesting one, actually, because um, during lockdown, they were used, weren't they, and pilloried a little bit for you know their wages and saying they should be donating money. But then it was, oh, you need to get back playing football because the country needs you to get everyone's um, you know hopes back up again and and everything. Well, you're being toyed around. Just hang on, hang on. Let's not just forget these guys are people, and there's something that we've never seen before going around. Um, so no, it's a really valid point, and um, and I think you know good people having good people in your squad in your club is so important. And I think that's why Brighton and Hove Albion have been so successful that players, backroom staff, administrators, through to everybody who works around the stadium, um, they're good people as well, good human beings. And I think that counts for a lot um, because, as you say, if you remember that, treat people well, hopefully they'll respond. Really well put, JC, really well put. Um so picking up on that bit about the success of the club. Now, Brighton have just had their most successful season to date, um, finishing ninth in the Premier League. Um, a fantastic away record. Uh, what have you made of this season as a whole, JC? You know, what what is sort of like what are your overall thoughts on how this season has gone? Um, and also like the little dip in the middle. because um, it's been a bit of a roller coaster this season, hasn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's probably like the books on my shelf. It's like a book bookends, aren't they? They started brilliantly, you know, dipped away. Um, and that was a difficult time. It was a really, really difficult time. I think people were starting to worry. Um, I think everyone, I mean, myself included, was just, you know, why is it, couldn't quite work out why it was going wrong and why things weren't quite happening because, yes, it was small margins, but it just didn't seem to be turning and injury suspensions, all that sort of stuff. Can you use that, you know? Um, but you've got to say, I think the way that they've the one thing I love about Graham Potter is his flexibility. And I think that's what sort of got them out of that little period, because he likes to try different things. He likes to try different people. He doesn't overuse people. Um, that ability to draw on people, play them in different positions. Um, you know, if you think of uh, I'll say the obvious one, but say you look at Alexis McAllister when he played as the false nine. The next game, he's playing as the sitting midfielder, replacing Yves Bissouma. You know, that sort of flexibility, I think, has really held them in good stead. Um, and everyone goes on about, you know, the lack of goals and if only they had a striker. And I see pundits, you know, on television. It's it's a really quite basic view of Brighton and Hove Albion. And again, it comes back to what I was saying. I'm lucky enough and privileged enough to watch every single game so I can maybe give a little bit more context to it because that's not really strictly true. Um, and, you know, we talk about Neil Mope and, and you know, this guy scored more goals than anyone else in the last couple of seasons. So let, let's not let's not get away from that. Um, so I, I think that flexibility is there. I think there's been periods where it's been difficult. I think the squad strength maybe has got a little bit exposed at certain times. And obviously to lose someone like a, a Lewis Dunk for a long period of time has never happened before. Adam Webster out, I thought, changed their play from the back. And that's what they were trying to do. And missing that component, I think, hit them quite hard as well. And he just probably, Graham Potter, just needed a little bit of time to work on different ideas and different ways of trying to counteract that. And um, no, it's been brilliant, hasn't it? And you talked about my favourite moment. And again, I, I say Graham Potter got it right. He has provided and his squad have provided, obviously, some amazing moments. And they just, now, you, I bet, you, you know, you've probably even forgotten the opening day at Burnley. 
You know, we, no one's been talking about that. Everyone's talking about Man United, wasn't it brilliant? Blah, 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 blah. You know, last minute, Tottenham, oh, wasn't it great? Whatever. What about Brentford? You know, that last minute goal there. You know, I mean, there's just been some tremendous moments in the season. And as fans, I think everyone should just really relish it, enjoy it, you know, because there's going to be difficult times ahead. There always is. Um, the Premier League is such that there will be periods for every club where you don't quite get what you want. Doesn't matter, even if you Liverpool went through a bit of a sticky patch, you know, um, but they bounce back, and that's the most important thing. But it's been tremendous, it's been full of wonderful memories, lovely moments, and yeah, the stats don't lie, do they, in terms of uh, uh of points, goals scored, and goals conceded? Yeah, exactly that. And you, you say about like people forgetting about the start of the season. Um, and uh, me and my friend Toby, who started this podcast, um, and we got these guys on um, later on. Uh, but we were joking about European tours back then, like just tongue in cheek, um, because it was just so like, wow, is this the Brighton we were watching last season during lockdown? Because there were some really frustrating times, and obviously we played really well, but we weren't getting the results, and then suddenly we were. Um, and it just goes to prove how short people's memories are these days in football. That um, obviously, as you say, amazing starts to the season. Yes, we had a dip, but I, I would say seventeen other clubs, eighteen other clubs had uh, their own dip. So yeah, it's always going to happen in the Premier League. Yeah, and it's difficult to make that comparison because you quite rightly say about lockdown, things were different. Some people, you know, did well out of lockdown. Some people didn't. You know, some people struggle. I think like Sheffield United really struggled not to have fans in their own stadium. And that was a key, key to their success for a certain period of time. And they struggled a little bit. So to making comparisons is always difficult, I think. And even making an assessment of the whole season is sometimes not necessary. You can look at calendar years, can't you? Or home, away, or top six. So it's all quite random metrics, really, uh, to a certain degree. So from from that point of view, I think you make a really valid point, and making that comparison can be can be really really difficult. For me, I would say under under Potter especially, there's it feels like there's been a lot of really good sort of changes in the sense of it's been the little things for me. I, I remember when Potter uh, tragically lost his parents, um, and to see the fan base get so behind Potter, and I think we I think we won uh, a game not long after that, and just see him get so emotional with the crowd and us cheer him on and I remember towards the end of the season you could see Neil Mopay was in a, in a particularly bad way and me and Joe were actually at a game and, and he was subbed off and everyone was cheering for him and we were just getting all behind him and it's those little things which I think we need to uh, look at and say yeah that's that's great that's a really great moment. Yeah I think you're absolutely right I mean Graham Potter uh, found out about I think it was the death of his father and two hours later he was doing the press conference for the next game and he hadn't even told anyone um, and that's what he's had to go through. So credit to him. Um, he could quite easily got someone else to do it, but he felt like maybe that he had to do it or wanted to do it. Um, again, you're right, the support for Neil Mopey. We actually commentated, when we were commentating, we actually mentioned it, how good it was. He had a real shocking game, hadn't he? And it just missed, nothing went right for him and everything. But he went behind the goal, didn't he? And everyone was cheering his name. And I just thought, that's brilliant, you know. And I think that positivity, because there were a few negative noises, weren't they? Particularly, I think everyone highlights the Leeds game. Um, it's a small minority, isn't it? In general, people, I think, are quite supportive. But that's what you're called. You're called a supporter. And that's what I always think. You know, be a supporter. If you're struggling a little bit, forget yourself as a fan. You're actually a supporter. And that's and that can make a real, real difference. And uh, no, I think you, you're absolutely you know spot on. 
it's funny that you mentioned about the Leeds game because um, when I listened to you and Johnny commentate, um, sorry, you and Warren commentate on the Wolves game, uh, the Wolves fans, you could hear them booing in the background and Warren uh, passed some comment about, oh, I wonder if this is going to be in the uh, the national news, which I, I found quite funny. Um, Warren does always make me laugh, which is uh, good skills. How is it um, commentating with Warren? I mean, we've spoken a lot about yourself, but obviously, like, I always think of like you as a bit of a duo. Um, you know, how is it, um, you know, being there with Warren um, and, you know, getting to talk about football? Yeah, well, from my point of view, it, it, it's it's great. I mean, he'll tell you that he's the one with the talent, that's for sure. Um, no, I'm only kidding. No, we get on pretty well. Um, I think hopefully that comes across on air. We don't always agree, and I think that's probably a good thing. Um, you know, everyone's entitled to their opinions. Um, I mean, obviously, I am a commentator and he is a summariser, so I think there is a slightly different role there. Um, I'm not a big fan of this word co-commentator. I don't like it. Um, because that sort of means you're repeating what the commentator is saying, and that's not really what you're there for. He is an expert. He has played the game at the highest level. Um, that's that's his job. My job is slightly different, even though I am entitled to an opinion um, as well. But no, it's brilliant. And I think for me, it's about honesty for him. He tells it like it is. And I think when he first came on board, um, I, you know, I've had some brilliant summarizers before him. Um, he was. I think it was a bit of a shock to some of the fans, to be honest, the way he said it. Um, but I think in the long run, people now respect him because he was honest, because he'll say when they're brilliant. Who You, you said about amazing bits of commentary. Here's an amazing bit of commentary. Am I watching Brighton? Am I watching Barcelona? Now, that's been copied by somebody else as well. Uh, I'm For a fact, I, I've seen it with another team who clearly have watched it on the club feed and then thought, I'll write that down and then I'll copy it and then I'll put, insert different name and whatever it may be. He came up with that. That was brilliant. It summed it totally up. So when they're going well, he will shout to the rafters. But if they're not, he'll tell it like it is as well. And I think as a listener, that is what you want. But at the same time, not a lot's happening and he's having a bit of fun. You know, um, he'll take the mickey out of me um, about what's happening on the side of the pitch. You know, the, the clobber that I'm wearing or whatever it may be. He's quite happy to do that. And I'm quite happy for him to do it because um, no, he's, he's he's a tremendous asset. He's a lovely guy. And, you know, I, th I think hopefully anyone who walks up to him in, on the concourse or something um, uh, would have a good chat with him and uh, he'd be honest with them as well. Tom, you spoke about JC-isms. We've got Warrenisms as well. Um, I remember <laughs> we've only got 10 men as well. That was... Oh, like absolutely. And in a way, that probably should be one of our proudest moments because I say one thing, don't I? And then he sort of... It's, it's a bit like I send in the cross and he nods it in. You know, it, it kind of... That's that, that duo working together at its best. Um, you're absolutely spot on. That was um, another one I need to write down as well. So... Um, yeah, and I, I think he's got better over the years. I think he's learnt more. Um, I think he feels inspired at, at, at the Premier League level. Um, you know, we had some, you know, we used to get home at six in the morning from Blackburn. We got all the way to Blackburn, I remember, and then we got there. And as I walked along the side of the pitch about 12 o'clock, the referee just did that. It's off. It's off. And we're just thinking, what? The, the team weren't even there. We had to come back on the Tuesday. Uh, to play the rearranged game. And then on the Saturday, I think we went to Burnley and we were getting home at like six in the morning. The motorways were shut, you know, which is, you know, and, and you know, to be with, well, probably my company, but to be in his company, you know, it, sometimes you push to the limit doing the job we do. Um, but he is incredibly resilient and, um, and really good company. And sometimes we just have to sit there and laugh as we're sitting in 
Cheltenham services once, I think, when the M6, the M4 and the M5 had all been shut. And we were going through, I don't know where we were going through. I think we ended up, we didn't even know where we were. We ended up at Cheltenham about five in the morning thinking, well, we'll get home eventually, but what the hell, you know. So, um, no, he's great fun. And uh, and he's, I think, become a, a really good pundit. And, you know, you, that's why you now hear him on network programmes and TV programmes, people asking his opinion because, you know, they respect him. Yeah, definitely. I think um, the, the pair of you are absolutely brilliant at the job that you do. Um, and long may it continue. And uh, talking of long may it continue, um, looking ahead, JC, um, we've just spoken about how we've had an amazing season as a club. Um, what do you think the future holds for this team under Graham Potter? We've got a lot of uh, exciting loan uh, prospects coming back to the club, um, the likes of Matoma, Undav, um, and uh, Van Heck as well. Do you think that Brighton need to strengthen much in the summer? Um, and if they do, what would you like to see? Uh, who who would you like to see brought in, I suppose? Well, you can't stand still in the Premier League. Um, so I think you always need to be looking to improve. And I think that's why if you look every single season, there's been an improvement upon improvement upon improvement. And you've got to do that. Particularly, I mean, they've got to where they have. I mean, it's incredible, really. Expectations are going to be so high. Um, and that's something that they're going to have to temper to a certain degree. But there is young talent there. Um, some of them will get an opportunity. Some of them won't. Um, Graham Potter needs to have a look at them, see which ones he thinks can make it. He's already made the decision on the likes of Sarmiento. So Alzate previously, um, yeah, you know, Raider Kadra is another one. Who's, you know, he's already played for the Albion, hasn't he, at Manchester City. So could he feature? Um, so there's a lot of talent out there. But at the same time, I think if you want to keep getting better, you need to keep getting better players. Um, you know, if you think of, you know, was Leandro Trossard an upgrade on what was there before? Probably. We're now starting to see him, you know, being linked to big moves and, you know, to big clubs because he's a big player. Um, you need to continue to do that. The one thing they have got in their favour is, one, they're very good at maintaining their players. Uh, their, their players, if they don't want to, them to leave, I go hop back to someone like Dale Stevens, who was really important, and they had loads of bids for him, and they just knocked them back. Um, that's good. Tony Bloom is uh, Tony Bloom is very good at that. I think um, the second is that they've got a very good recruitment setup, um, and you know we see Moises Caicedo and what an impact he's made. You know. Um, Yes, he's probably got a little bit more experience than maybe the likes of Kozłowski or someone like that. But these guys are a little bit younger and maybe haven't played quite as much football. So, so I think all the components are there, but you do need to keep improving. And the sheer fact that Brighton and Hove Albion were linked to a player like um, Darwin Nunes. Yeah, come on, look at what's happening there now. You know, So you know, they've got that in place, but I do think that they will probably need to just strengthen a couple of little areas just with that little bit of experience, because it's quite a lot of pressure to put on younger players who maybe um, you mentioned, uh, was it Van Heck you mentioned? You know, he's only actually had one season in the championship, hasn't he? Um, so quite a lot to ask maybe of him to you know, make that step up, but he could be there as, on the sidelines. But what about the call that they made with Robert Sanchez and all those people were up in arms when Matt Ryan was, uh, was told, you know, you're no longer needed. What a, what a turnaround that's been and what an amazing decision that was and how that transformed the team. And the one thing is Graham Potter, you know, he has got that ability. If he sees something and I think he knows a good player, he knows a good person and they go to trust in him. And you mentioned about like, where do they go next? It's difficult, isn't it? It's, 
it's got to be you've got to aim, I think, probably for top half again, consolidate. Could you squeeze into a European place? Maybe last season was a bit of a missed opportunity. You think a couple of moments, maybe. Would that have been a stretch for that squad? Yes. Um, but if we look back over the years, recently, relatively recently, Southampton have made it to Europe. Burnley have made it to Europe. You know, there's, there's no reason why that can't be a, you know, an ambition. But I think it's about consolidating. Um, but the great thing is, with a ninth place finish, um, with the players that they've got, they'll be able to attract good players as well um, because people will want to come. And if if you see Moises Caicedo playing and you think, yeah, great. If you see Alexis McAllister, you know, playing for Argentina and he's playing in Brighton squad, well, hang on, I might want to have some of that. So that's got to be a good thing too. The funniest thing, you mentioned Burnley getting to Europe. Uh, obviously, they were well excited and then they get a draw against Aberdeen, I think it was. Uh, so, yeah, glamorous. <laughs> yes. Well, that was the pre-season game for the Albion, wasn't it? But um, I think they'll be going to warmer climbs this year, thank goodness. But, uh, I mean, I used to cover every single pre-season game. Um, I mean, again, things have changed, haven't they? But, you know, they wanted feeds and uh, and everything. And it was probably just me or Andy Naylor or whatever and heading off to places like Grimsby and, you know, and places like that. But, um, yeah. Some of those ex-managers who took us to some strange places, but uh, but there you go. So, um, but it's a bit more clandestine now. But um, yeah, fantastic. Yeah, it's going to be a very exciting season next season. I feel no matter what happens, I think this squad under Graham Potter has so much potential. And I think we talk about a lot about players, um, but I think you know Graham Potter. I think keeping him at the club as long as we can. Um, I think that's the the number one priority. In a way. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. You look at all those people who said about you only got given the second contract, you know, having just got the first. And people are like, well, what are they doing? What are they doing? Now it looks like a masterstroke, doesn't it? Yeah. Trust By the way, if I hear that Graham Potter's linked with Tottenham again, I'm going to lose it because <laughs> it seems like a constant chain of things. But do you worry as fans? Do you worry? I well yeah of course we do because it's I think I feel like eventually sorry Tom it's all right no I feel like eventually it could be a point where uh he might think you know what more can I do here at Brighton and 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 whatnot but I personally would like to see Potter in like the England job for instance over something else but not yet though (laughs) not just yet no I think I, I, I think you have to look at it in its entirety about the club his relationships with people at the club his ambitions, I don't know his ambitions, only he and his close family know his ambitions, I imagine. So, you know, um, enjoy it while it lasts. I often say this about players. You can worry a lot about when they're gone. Just don't forget to enjoy them while you have them. Um, And, uh, you know, he's an incredible person, incredible head coach. I think he's destined for massive things. You know, one good thing is top sides in the Premier League certainly don't... uh, uh, don't seem to like to have uh, British managers, do they? So maybe that's one good positive. But, um, you, know, you know, as you say, England, maybe abroad, uh, you know, it won't have gone unnoticed by a lot of very, very big clubs, the job that he's doing. Yeah, and I think the reason I say that I'm not worried, Curtis, is um, I, I trust Bloom and I trust the process of the club. I think that, as JC has mentioned, you know, each year we've been in the Premier League, we've sort of, you know, we're building those small steps. And I think when Chris Hewton obviously um, departed, it was quite a bit of a, oh, what, what's going to happen next? And then obviously Graham Potter, a relative unknown, obviously had that half season at Swansea and uh, had done really well. Um, and as you say, JC, it looks like a masterstroke um, to bring him on board and then to give him that extended contract. Um, so 
I think, as you say, we should enjoy him whilst it lasts because I'm sure it won't be too long before uh, some bigger teams than us um, start looking for his uh, signature. So we have reached the hour mark, listeners and viewers. Um, thank you very much, uh, JC, for your time this evening. It has been an absolute pleasure. Can I quickly uh, say, Tom, this has cool. marked our 50th episode today. Um, and what an honour it is to have you as a guest on our 50th episode. Yeah, thank you, John. Episode, my privilege, uh, my pleasure, honestly. Uh, it's been really enjoyable, guys. And um, may you have another good 50 in you as well. And um, maybe I'll come back for the 100th. And then uh, I'm not quite sure where we'll be in terms of uh, how often that that works. But it'll probably be about this time next year. But um, let's 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 hope there's plenty more good things to talk about as well. Let's get in the diary, Joe. JC, 100th episode special. <laughs> um, so thank you very much to Joe Curtis and Johnny Cantor for joining us on today's episode of Albion Obsessed. Please don't forget to like, share and subscribe for more content if you haven't done so already. And keep your eyes peeled on the channel because we've got some exciting, amazing, awesome pre-season, post-season stuff still to come your way. Take it easy, guys. We've been Albion Obsessed. Yeah.